my name is Corey. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor in London. Uh, we have, other than Maddie, do we have any Londoners here? London, really? Okay, where are you from? Church, background, area? Harvest in London? South London? Somebody else? North Park. Hey, Jordan Elgi. Stony Creek. Mark Farrow. Very cool. Anybody else? Does somebody else have any hand? No. Uh, I, I'm, I'm the worship pastor at West Park Church in London, have been for the last four and a half years, have loved my time there, um, have grown a lot, have learned a lot. Um, I'm a graduate of, of this fantastic college and a, and a somewhat current student in the seminary. I'm technically enrolled, but I don't do classes because I ain't got no time for that. Um, but it really, is, it really is wonderful to be with you guys here. Uh, DJ, actually, DJ and I went to school together years and years ago. I was looking back at, like, my uh, yearbooks, being like, holy cow, I was a dumb kid back when I... That was, that was 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago. That's crazy. Um, so today, I'm going to... Maddie asked me if I'd come and talk about art stuff, but for most of you... How many of us are in music program or in BCM or BTH music or artists of some variety? Hands up. Okay. Hands up high so I can see you. All right. How many of us, the goal is to be lead pastor guy? Hands up. Like two or three. Okay. How many of us have no idea what we want to do? Awesome. That's fantastic. That's good. That's good because I think what I'm going to challenge us with today is not just for leaders who are going to be involved in worship ministries or people that are going to be preaching on Sunday mornings, but, are, but this is going to be transformative. I think it's been transformative in the life of my local assembly, but I hope that this will be transformative in your local assemblies as you take back what you've heard from me, from God's word, um, to your churches. Because what we need more than anything in our day because my generation of students has not done this well enough, is that your generation of students would rise up and lead the church in passion and fervor. And sometimes that seems like a daunting task to put on a whole bunch of college students. Hey guys, how about, how about we get together and figure out how we're going to passionately follow Jesus with everything that we have and lead out in our communities of faith, even though we might not have a leadership title? Because you've got to do it. I hope that that's why you're here at Heritage is so that you can learn something that you can take back to your local church or to the kingdom work of the Lord and do something massive with it. Because it's not enough just to come and to learn stuff and then go away and not have any impact in where you're going. Right? I'm a little hard line. I'm a, I told a line of aggressive and challenging pretty closely. So if you feel like this guy's just beating me up the whole time, uh, I don't intend to. But if you feel beat up, maybe it's the Holy Spirit convicting your heart. Just going just gonna to say that. Just going to say that. Um, so today we're going to dive into the seven most commonly used words for praise in the Bible. And maybe you've heard something like this before. This is not only um, my information. I didn't come up with this because I'm, I'm not a BTH uh, grad. I do not have Hebrew. And all of you are like, well, why are you talking here then? Um, I don't have Hebrew as, as something that I took in school. I have Logos Bible software that tells me all those things. Um, and, and, if, and if either of the Dr. Barkers were in the room, I would be scolded severely. So a lot of what I'm going to share today is not necessarily just my material, but it's stuff that I've thought through as being in, being in worship ministry over the last decade um, and, and really seeking after what God has for us as exemplary 
faithful, spirit-filled worshipers. Because before you are a pastor, before you're a youth leader, before you are a worship leader, before you are a women's director, before you are anything inside of ministry, you're a worshiper. And what we need, like I said at the beginning, is we need people who are passionately sold out for the cause of Christ who are willing to worship him and lay down their lives for that cause. But sometimes we often, because I, I, I was you guys. I, I sat in this room. I listened to speakers like me. I came to chapel far too often and was like, can we just get on with our day? And I know that that's an attitude that sometimes we can have when we come to chapel in a Christian setting because we go to church on Sunday and then we go Bible classes and we do all these things. But sometimes we forget the reason for our praise. Right? We can get so focused on the doing of the work of ministry and the doing of being a good Christian and the doing of being a Bible college student that we get so saturated in this stuff that we forget the reason behind what it is that we're doing. Let me give you a reason why we should praise. Revelation 5. And then he took the scroll. The four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one of them had a harp and they held golden bowls and filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You alone are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands of millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders. And they sang a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and glory and riches and wisdom and strength and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belongs to the one who sits on the throne and to his lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. I often, because of the role that I'm in, think about why we praise in our congregations, why we get together on Sunday morning. And for some people, it's like, well, why do we spend 35 minutes singing songs when we really want to get to the good stuff, Right? Like we want, we want to hear the preacher guy. We want to be, we want to hear the, the word of God preached and the Bible hit the, I don't use the whatever that thing, the pulpit thing, but we want to hear that, right? That's, that's kind of why we're going to church because we want to do something. We want to be challenged and transformed by God. But why we sing is so much more important than just something that we do to set ourselves up to hear God's word. Do you believe that? Because singing is an all-body experience. It's an all-emotional experience. It's also an all-mental experience. It's not something that you can just pretend inside of and then actually engage in. If you're like, well, I'm just going to kind of... There's a, I'll use this as an example. There's a couple guys in our church. I love them. And I'm, every time I'm, I'm leading and I'm watching them, I'm like, I'm going to get you to sing one of these days. Because they stand there like this. And they watch. And sometimes they kind of look around the room to see who else is singing. And then every once in a while, we'll, we'll do a song that they think is appropriate, right? And then the hands will kind of come down. Not all the way that they're not crossed. They're still kind of crossing their hands. They're standing there, and they're kind of thinking. And, but they're missing out. They're missing out on something deep that God wants to do in them by them engaging in something that all of creation already does. 
All of creation sings the glory of God. Jesus said, if these people are going to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. Praise is core. Worship is core to the Christian experience. And it's too easily forgotten the root of why we do this. But first we have to establish something really important. And when I, I, I use this message, I preached this message in our church uh, a few months ago. And when I, when I, was, when I was speaking, I said, this, this got like a gasp from uh, a lady in her church, Maddie knows her, Diane Elgers. She's like, oh, no. She's just, she's that kind of person. Said, God does not need your praise. She's like, what? Never heard that before. God doesn't need it. And somehow that when we gather to worship the Lord, we're somehow bolstering his godness. He doesn't need it. In no way does our worship of him make him any more glorious than he is to himself. But when we make Jesus in our minds and in our hearts the most glorious treasure and we praise him with all of our whole heart, mind, body, soul, strength, we are the people that are changed. Our view of God's glory is elevated. Our value of his treasure becomes greater. God doesn't need it. He's not somehow sitting up in, on, on the throne. Jesus isn't sitting on the throne kind of going, oh, I wish that they would just sing a little bit louder because I'm feeling really down about myself today. Like it's a ludicrous statement, right? Because Jesus is in need of nothing. But he calls us to worship him because he is the greatest treasure in all of existence. And for him to call us to worship anything else would mean that he is not the most glorious treasure. And so we need to direct our focus to him. When Jesus had the disciples praising God in Luke 19, the Pharisees told him, come, and his response was, you gotta get your people to quiet down, they're making a racket. And Jesus says, what I said earlier, if these people stop, the rocks are gonna cry out. See, when we, when we enter into worship corporately, something spiritual and something massively impactful happens. And sometimes I think that we forget what that looks like. Uh, Maddie was telling me last night you guys had uh, like a, a worship and praise night, right? Those are treasured moments that I've had from my experience at Heritage, and I hope that they will be for you too. Here's something to think about. 400 times inside of the Bible, singing is expressly talked about, okay? 50 times, it's a direct command so for the guy who's at my church who's like this, when I preached this message, and I was like, and if he was sitting over here where DJ's sitting, and did you know that singing is commanded in the Bible 50 times? And the guy kind of looked at me like this and gave me one of these. We've got a good relationship. He's just, he's really not in the whole singing thing. So if it's commanded that many times directly that we are to sing, and then we already understood that God is in need of nothing, who does praise really affect? Because it doesn't ultimately affect his worth but God is still blessed by it, and God still wants it. Matt Chandler, uh, who I'm sure some of you listened to, said in a sermon not too different from this one, there is a spiritual power unleashed when the people of God sing. I'm going to take that a little bit farther. There is a spiritual power unleashed when the people of God praise him holistically, because singing is easy. Letting stuff come out of your mouth is easy. It's still spiritual. It still unleashes power. But when we engage in singing with all of ourselves, something different happens. Sometimes it's called charismatic. Sometimes it's called distracting. 
We're going to look at these seven words of praise and realize that David, who was the chief worshiper of the Old Testament, was anything but non-distracting. Worship should be a celebration. And I think we need to shift our thinking away from the reverence before the, before the throne room of the Lamb and realize that there's celebration at the foot of the cross because of what he's done for us. And so when we sing, when we praise God, it is good for us individually and corporately. Individually, here's what I mean. When we need to be reminded of ourselves, of who God is, we sing songs that we ourselves need to be reminded of. In our church assemblies, what happens is when you are singing beside somebody who's had a gong show of a week and somebody, a a breakup happened or mom and dad got bad news or somebody lost a job or any of those things and somebody around you starts singing something that is true, that bolsters your faith. That reminds you that it's still true regardless of your circumstances. That's why worship is both vertical and horizontal. It's between you and God, yes, but it's also when we gather corporately as a body, it's between you and the person sitting next to you and the person behind you and the person in front of you. They need you just as much as they need to meet with God. Because worship is holistic. And if you're not convinced about that, if you really want to see God move among you, lay hold to the truth that God enthrones the praises of his people. And I think that we misunderstand that. Not just, we use the the language of when two or three are gathered in your name, you're there with us. And that's true. And when we sing, God is present. That's true. But when we sing and worship and revere with a reckless abandon, God's spirit comes and does things in hearts and minds that Our keeping ourselves reserved all the time doesn't necessarily allow for his spirit to work in. I'm sure you've experienced this. Who's ever been to like a major Christian concert, a big event where you felt, or a youth conference or something where you, maybe it was last night where you felt the presence of God in a different way. What were the things that led up to those experiences? It wasn't just that you were singing is that there was a freedom that came in that moment that allowed you to do so. And what I'm going to suggest is that freedom is a choice. It's not something that happens by by atmosphere and by a good band and by a fantastic singer. The, The way that we talk about this at West Park is that we want to create an atmosphere where people can come to choose to worship. We don't want to create an experience that makes people worship because then they're not worshiping Jesus, they're worshiping the experience. That's a big problem, right? Because then they're, if they don't have this emotional connection to what's happening, they've somehow not worshipped God. When every single thing you see in Scripture is worship the Lord is a choice, first and foremost. Choose to obey. Choose to worship. As I said before, over 400 times worship is used in the Bible. 222 times in the translation that I like to study from, is, it is used in the Psalms the word praise, and we're going to kind of go through some of these things. Here's something that we need to understand, though, and you guys are Bible college students. You understand that words have different meanings from different contexts and different places in Scripture. Um, Anybody here who's in Greek or Hebrew right now? How's your life going? (laughs) Pretty good? Pretty rough? Um, So I don't, like I said earlier, I don't have my Hebrew. If I say this wrong, you can keep that lovingly to yourself, okay? Here are the seven most commonly word used for praise in the Psalms. First one I'm going to use is zamar. It means to make music, to celebrate in, in song and with music, and to touch parts of musical instruments in praise. 
This one gets a little finicky for people who are not musical. How many of us are like, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket? Be honest, it's okay. Umbrella of grace. There's kind of this thing like people get into their mindsets that I'm either a singer type person or I'm not a singer type person. And because we wrongly equate worship with singing, we feel like that's, that's, the, that's the major influence of our worship times, right? If you go back to your church, you spend a lot of time in the Word. You probably spend some time in prayer, but you spend a lot of time with music. And for people that are non-musical, they feel like they're getting the short end of the stick sometimes. And zamar is kind of a word that talks through that, but it's, it's saying you are to sing and you're supposed to use instruments because that's a way to praise God. But for those of us who sing, what are we supposed to do? I've got good news for you. God never says to make a good noise. He says make a joyful one. And God is more concerned about reckless abandon and singing out something that is true with all of yourself, regardless of whether or not you feel good about how it sounds. That's why in our assembly, the music is just loud enough so that you can hear yourself sing, but not a whole lot of other people sing. Because we don't want people to feel awkward when they're like, man, Maddie really can't carry a tune today. That has never happened ever. But in our assembly, that's what we try to do. Because we want Zamar to happen. We want praise with music to happen. So we give people outs that are not necessarily musical to allow them to engage in this thing that is primarily musical. It's important. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, I actually wrote a completely different message for today. Uh, and I asked Maddie to pick one. She picked this one. Um, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 are mirror passages. They're actually mirror books. Paul probably wrote one and then wrote a very similar one to the other church, regardless of the order. It doesn't really matter. In 5.19 of Ephesians, he says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs among yourself and making music to the Lord in your hearts. So this is Zamar. And it's also horizontal. We're supposed to sing to one another and encourage one another. Colossians 3.16 says, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Other translations will say, let the, let, the glory of, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. Teach and counsel each other with all wisdom that he gives, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. So again, it's horizontal. Zamar is primarily a we do this together sort of praise. <clears throat> Then we kind of think about, like, well, why do, we sing, why do we sing songs at all? Why don't we just read the psalms? Because God is pretty specific about singing a new song. talks about that quite a lot of times in the psalms. But tehillah is another word. It means laudation, a hymn of praise, a song, a new song, a spontaneous song. It's vocally singing out a hymn or singing a song. Or what's common, what's, what's common in some churches is this thing called vamping. Anybody who's in worship ministry has heard the term vamping before. We're going we're gonna to play on, uh, we're going to go from the one to the four to the five. We're going to go back to the one, we're going to go to the six, and you're just going to sing whatever comes to your mind. Like, and, that's, and that's kind of the flow of what you're going to follow, and you vamp on this thing. That's the same kind of idea. So those are the, ones that are t- those are the words that generally talk about praise in terms of singing and music. But posture in worship is really the core of the issue. How we posture ourselves changes the way that we can engage with God. Yada is used 67 times in the Psalms, and you've probably heard somebody uh, from the platform call at a congregation before, come on, come with me, join with me, or lift your hands, or uh, let's clap to the Lord, or let's do something that's, that's physically engaging inside of our worship experience. Yada is one of those words. And I started to think about new, I started to think about worship in a new way over the last 
few years since I've been since I've been leading at West Park because when I was at Heritage, I was like, I don't want to get like too into it, you know, like into worship because like I've seen some of these experiences. Uh, there's a church uh, that I that I went to one time in um, in a in a large city in Ontario. And it was it was near a place where airplanes take off. I won't mention its name, um, and and it was just it, it felt a little bit awkward for me because that's just not my upbringing. Like I grew up in a united church where we sang hymns with six chords, and there was a guy standing at the front who was doing this, and you're supposed to follow this guy. And worship was stale; there wasn't any life to it. After I got saved, after Christ graciously and mercifully took my heart and made me new. Um, I started going to a church with, with the pastor. Um, one of my best friends, his dad was a pastor, started going to church there. And it was like, oh, they use instruments here. That's really cool. But the thing that I noticed was that people weren't standing like they generally stand in these really traditional churches with their hands on the chair in front of them just looking or looking at this book, right? You've all seen this image before. Uh, the best way to describe this is uh, the Mr. Bean um, church thing, right? That was my upbringing. So to go from that to this experience at this other church in this large city to where people were falling down and screaming and barking like dogs and this whole kind of very different experience than I've ever had before, I was like, this can't really be right. Or can it? And I'm still not sure how I figure out how to land on that issue But raising our hands in praise and celebration and enthusiasm is not only a Christian response, this is a human response. uh, I see a buddy who's wearing a Leafs hat over here. You ever been to a Leafs game? And? Loud? Quiet? Yeah. People, if the Leafs happen to score, um, (laughs) do the hands go up and people shout? This is not a Christian response. This is a worship response. Us to physically engage with something that we value is a human response. It's not just something that Christians are supposed to do. So when I get, in, when I get into these situations where we're leading our family in worship and I'm like, just, just not be dead for five minutes because Yadah calls you to lift your hands in praise. Yadah says that you're supposed to get outside of your own physical hindrances and allow for God to do something in you because you're posturing your body in a way that positions your heart to hear from God you don't think that that's true, think about every single situation in the Old Testament where somebody encounters God. They fall flat on their face. They're wrecked by the glory of God. The challenge isn't that we're not supposed to, we're supposed to be reserved and be in the presence of God. The challenge is that we're supposed to be human in our worship and to place value on what God places value on. Barack is another word, not Barack Obama. Barack is just just kind of spelled in English the same way. Um, This may not be a word that we would use to to incorporate worship in our corporate settings, but this is something that should happen in private. If you don't have private worship, you're missing out on what God wants to do in your life. If you're looking at me kind of going like, well, that seems a little extreme. Jesus calls you to do a pretty extreme life. Um, DJ will probably remember, we went to school with a guy here uh, named Kamadi, who was, uh, he self-proclaimed the prince of Ethiopia. <laughs> he was not, but that's what he told us. And how are we to know? We'd never met anybody from Ethiopia before. Um, but it would be regular 
regular that Kamadi would wake up in the middle of the night, 2.30, 3.30, and start blowing a ram's horn, singing and praying. Regular. <laughs> Did you ever room with him? I was an RA, and I, I, my, my uh, room was at the back of, this, at the, back of the uh, residence building on the far side, and uh, Kamadi's was on the opposite corner on the upper floor on the other side, and I could hear him every day. What I started to learn to appreciate was that this guy was committed and disciplined in his private worship. It was distracting and a little bit bothersome at times, but he was committed to it regularly, three or four times a week, three o'clock. Yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And a very, like, African, big, loud, vibrant. I'm like, man, us North American, white, upper-middle-class folks have got this all wrong. Because this guy's willing to give up his sleep, and my sleep, to praise God. (laughs) in ways that are just so different than anything that I've experienced before. That's, that's Barak. Shabak is similar, but it's to address in a loud tone to shout. And, and again, in, if you come from a Baptist situation or a, a kind of reformed, conservative leaning, um, this probably doesn't happen a lot in your church. We started to kind of make it practice. We'll all, I will call to our congregation for a shout of praise. I'll say, let's, let's give the Lord a shout of praise and we'll clap. But if it, so for you, whoever said that they were going to lead, be lead pastors, that's your goal. Let me tell you this. If you don't start that, your people will never do it. You want to see praise change in your context? Your lead pastor has to be the one who does it. So our, our lead pastor, Charles, is, is a, a good old southern boy from southern Georgia, from a, a very fundamental Baptist background, but he is nothing of, of the fundamentalist kind of guy. I asked him once, I was like, Charles, I, re- I would really like to see our worship sets change. And and some, something that will really help with musical transitions, but it'll also give our people a, an, an opportunity to worship God is at the end of a song, let's clap. But I need you to start it. And he goes, well, I've never done that before. <laughs> but if you think that it's important, and I know that it's biblical, I'll do it. Because if I don't do it, our people won't do it. And when Charles started doing that, do you remember this? It was like maybe three or four weeks before somebody else caught on, and they were like, it's like there was this air <laughs> balloon in between their hands that they couldn't quite push. But then eventually it started. And Charles said on regular occasions at the start of his message, wasn't that just awesome how we were able to worship God and shout out to him and clap and, and be loud and praise him? And we're not clapping for the band because they did a good job and because Corey and the team worked really hard to put together smooth transitions. That has nothing to do with it. We're applauding the Lord and we're using our bodies as a way to say we're sacrificing and loving you. And this is my favorite word and it's probably the one that you're most, common, uh, most familiar with is halal or hallelujah. And this can mean several things. It means to rave or to boast or to shine or to celebrate, and my favorite definition is this one, to be clamorously foolish. Clamorously foolish. But that doesn't sit right in my reform setting where I sit and I listen and I read the Bible and I want to know about good Calvinistic theology. Not knocking any of those things. I'm in that camp. I'm strongly in that camp. 
But when our theological leanings are so conservative, we don't allow ourselves to experience what God calls us to in his word. David was clamorously foolish. Another guy that I think is a good example of this was Peter. He did and said way before he thought. Right? All the time. All the time. Because he was so focused on what God was doing. He was so focused on, I've got to give my whole life to this. Regardless of what anybody else thinks, I'm going to give my whole self to this because I know that God wants it. That's David. Psalm 69 says, Then I will praise God with singing. I will honor him with thanksgiving. It's, this is what it is. Then I will halal God's name with singing. Psalm 22, I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will halal you among your assembled people. Psalm 109, but I will give repeated thanks to the Lord, halaling him to everyone I meet. And the one that's probably most commonly understood and least used, halal his name with dancing accompanied by tambourine and instruments. Now there's a, there's a context for these things too, right? Just because somebody says that we're going to do this doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be effective or helpful or edifying in our churches. Because if we had somebody just break down, the, break down one of our aisles at the front and start dancing in our church congregation, a bunch of people would be like, do we need to call the hospital? Like, is there something going on? Like, if, if, if nutty Aunt Susie starts going off the rails at one of our services and we're not sure how to handle it, but she's just in, the, in this moment with God and she's trying to be as, as focused as she can and being clamorously foolish, halaling God with everything that she's got. I don't know that we should necessarily, like in the really traditional churches, Matt Chandler actually said this, like if one of our deacons went and said, are you all right? Is there something that we can do for you? Like if she raised her hand and everybody thought she had a question, we've not set our, we've not set our worship cultures up well for how we're supposed to praise. Are you tracking with me here? Praise and worship is specifically all body, all mind, all soul. Because God wants us to do it. Another way to think about halal or hallelujah is reckless abandon. Um, a great way to think about this is, is, is a hockey game. Or any concert that you've ever been to of an artist that you adore. Or any major thing that elevates and lifts you out of some weird experience of just normal into this euphoric kind of outer-worldly, other kind of sense that this is amazing and I, can't, I just can't help myself but giving all of it, all of myself into this situation. That's halal. That's hallelujah. Psalm 150 says, halal the Lord. Halal God in his sanctuary. Halal him in his mighty heaven. Halal him for his mighty works. Halal his unequal greatness. Halal him with the blast of a ram's horn. Halal him with the lyre and the harp. Halal him with the tambourine and dancing. Halal him with strings and flutes. Halal him with the crash of cymbals. Halal him with loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that has breath halal the Lord. Again, halal the Lord. I feel like we often don't get the energy that we should into our worship times. And worship times, you know what I'm talking about, right? And tadah is the last word. This is about thanksgiving and confession. Confession is something that is largely missing from our church culture today. Because confession is personal and it hurts a little bit. And we like nothing else in Northwestern soft Christianity than to be comfortable. Right? 
For those of you who want to be missionaries and want to go countercultural and go outside of your normative, I applaud you because you're doing something that the vast majority of us are not even thinking about being called to, are dead set terrified about being called to. But this tada word, this praise word of confession is important. It means that when we come to God, I am willing to lay everything down in front of him because I'm not going to think about what's best for me. I'm going to think about what he has done for me in every possible way and confess not just what I need him to do, but my need for him and who he is. That's the heart of David, who is the man after God's own heart. He was so committed to what God wants for me, what God wants for me, even when he screwed up, which was a lot. He kept on coming back to what God wants for me, for what God wants for me, what God wants, and confess, and confess, I need you, God. I need you, God. I need you, God. Slay my enemies. I need you, God. Help me in this situation. I need you, God. Help me get rid of this. Confess, confess, confess. It's all over, all over the Psalms. And in our modern worship practices, it is scarcely experienced. We're missing something here. So for those of you who want to be worship leaders, please help us in this. Please help us. Those of you who, are going to be, who want to be lead pastors or youth pastors or whatever that looks like, help your cultures and your, your environments learn this. We need to confess our need for God, not just the sins that we've committed, which is important, of course not just the things that we've done wrong, not just, our, not just confessing our need for him to intervene, but our, our confessing our need for him and who he is. It's an act of praise. It's an act of worship. It's an act of laying down what God has done in us. The practice of praise is that when we, whenever we understand anything wrongly, we won't actually fully embrace what we're being shown in scripture, right? If you, look at a, if you look at a passage and you're not understanding context, well, not, you're not going to get the right outcome. If you're looking into a passage that you're misinterpreting words, you're not, ex, you're not experiencing what God has for you, it's because you haven't done the hard work to understand these things. But there's a second part of that. When we are confronted with something in scripture, there needs to be practice that extends out of what we've just been challenged in, right? For somebody to, because let, let's be honest, you guys go to three chapels a week? Two chapels a week? They only get two? <laughs> I just go to three chapels a week. And as you walk up hill both ways to get there and back. No, I'm just kidding. I'm making myself feel really old. Um, two chapels a week is, is, is fantastic. But it gives you the opportunity to praise in, in a community of faith that wants to encourage you and wants you to grow in your ability to love God. This is safe. Even in your church context, it might not be safe to express these things. But when you're in a church and somebody preaches something, it's, it's likely that you don't remember exactly what the pastor talked about. Even this past Sunday, uh, Charles, our, our lead pastor, he's back from Cuba and he was speaking and I could not, I, I'd know his sermon because I see it four weeks out and go through it to make sure that our settled. I could not tell you at all what he's talking about. I, I forget. Not because I want to forget probably because I didn't do anything right afterwards. I didn't do anything to make it impact my day, right? But with singing, with worship, I bet you I could start, I could sit up on the piano, I could start a couple bars, or I could get somebody who's better at piano to start a couple bars of a song, and the vast majority of us could sing it because it's inclusive, because we all participate in it. 
And that's what this practice of praise is all about. But we can't just think right things. We have to do something about it. What does Romans 12, 1 and 2 say? Therefore, brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your... This is like a call and response situation. What? Bodies. To God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a what? A living sacrifice that he will find acceptable. This is the way to truly worship him. Body. Not just mind, not just heart. Body as well. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world or necessarily your tradition, but let God's word transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. If we change the way that we think about worship, our cultures of worship across our churches, across our cities will become so different and so vibrant and so life-giving that we won't have anything else to do but praise. But here are some of the common misconceptions. I'm not sure how much time I've got. Am I good? A little bit good? Okay, I'll go really quick. Here's some of the misconceptions. Public displays of praise or engagement or however you want to term physical expression are solely emotional responses. Who has heard this before? Let me say it again because I'm sure more people know what I'm talking about. Public displays of praise or engagement or physical expression of any sort are solely emotional. We've heard this, right? Yeah, God made us emotional beings, so I'm pretty sure that that's okay. Uh, Physical expressiveness in worship is irreverent. We're, We're not really, we're not giving God his due honor because we're acting clamorously foolish. Well, there's something to be said about you being an idiot inside of your church congregation and trying to make a spectacle of yourself or somebody else trying to make a spectacle of themselves. But to give your whole self to what you are doing, God is going to do something deep in you. This is is my favorite one, and this is one that I challenged our people with. Um, Physical expression isn't something we do here. Right? Because that's just, that's not our culture. We don't do that here. Well, the Bible says we're going to do it. We call ourselves a Bible church. I think we should listen to the Bible. That's a big challenge for a lot of people. Here's my favorite one. I have to feel a certain way in order to physically express my worship to God. Um, I'll use this as an example. Uh, when I was in college, Chris Tomlin was the big guy. Okay, um, And if you don't know who Chris Tomlin is, you've probably heard of him, but... I think, I don't even know who's big anymore now because I just, Joe, who's good now? Who, who do people listen to? Bethel. Beth, well, that's dangerous. Um, <laughs> well, can be. I went to a Chris Tomlin concert and I was like, this is really worshiping God. So people were, hands were up and people were shouting and Chris's band was good. And I was like, you get the tingly sensation up your spine, which is really you just being cold. And you kind of get that feeling. You're like, this is what worship really is. It gives me the warm and fuzzies and the tinglies, right? And then every time I went to church, I was like, well, why can't my church be like that? How come I'm not getting that same? I must not be worshiping. The band must not be spiritual. Our pastor must be a heretic. Like I'm just not having the same sense that I was having at this concert. If you base your Christian life based on what you feel, you are never going to move forward. My experience has been most often when I am wrecked that God shows up. 
that I've got nothing left that God shows up. When, I'm, when I've hit the wall emotionally, when I've hit the wall in my marriage, when I've hit the wall with my son, when I've hit the wall with our congregation of just not getting it, and then I get so beat down and distraught because I'm a good leader and I'm supposed to do this and da 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 And then I remember humility, Corey, because God has called you to be faithful and regardless of what you can produce, God is still doing things. And then you get so distraught and so depressed and I'm so evil and I'm a terrible human being and God's never going to use me again. But even in really, in really tough sin situations where I've wrecked my life, seriously, wrecked my life, put my family in jeopardy, put myself in jeopardy, put my ministry in jeopardy because of stupid choices that I chose to make. That's when God shows up. I didn't feel like worshiping him. I didn't feel good about lifting my hands. I didn't feel good about kneeling and crying in front of a whole bunch of people in my church. It wasn't about them. It was about what God was doing in me. You gotta get out of this sort of, I need to feel a certain way to do this. Because here's what I believe to be true. Because God has made us both physical and spiritual and emotional beings, you have to, I said this earlier, position your body, posture your body so that you can position your heart. That is all the way through scripture. Jesus tells a parable about um, a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to pray. And you've probably heard this before. The Pharisee gets up and, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that person. And I give what I, and I am boasting and just huge and lewd and nonsensical and so, so, so proud. And then the tax collector comes to God, wouldn't even look up to heaven, doesn't even come inside the inner courts and he's beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Your feelings are real. They're not reliable. How you feel doesn't change God's character. But when you, when you posture your physical body in a way that surrenders to God, that lets go of your inhibitions of what you're, what you're engaging in, that stops thinking about the person sitting next to you, thinking that if, I, if you lift your hand, you're going to be a little bit weird, or if you start to move around and sway or even maybe <clears throat> dance, then you're going to get into some sort of trouble. When you posture your body to position your heart, God's going to show up, and he's going to use you to encourage other people to become worshipers. Like I said before, guys, you are our generation that can change this. You can set an example. You can set a culture in your churches that is far different than the one that we've left. It takes God for what he says in his word to be true and to do it. You can do that. Because your primary, your primary calling is not to be a pastor. Your primary calling is not to be a worship leader. Your primary calling is not to be a husband or a wife. Your primary calling is not your primary calling is to be a worshiper of the living God. Yeah. Our core value as a worship team, our first value, is that we are going to be worshipers who encourage worship. That means it happens off stage and on stage. It primarily happens off stage. When, our, when the people that are on our team are not on the platform, I expect them to engage physically regardless if they feel like it or not. And they expect the same thing for me. I've had people on our team. Uh, when Rachel led a, a couple weeks ago, I was at the back of the room, uh, one of our worship leaders, and I was not engaging physically. I just, I wasn't feeling it. All the stuff that I know to be true, I was just like, I'm not gonna choose to do that. 
I don't feel like it today. And she said, remember, we set an example for everybody else, regardless if we're on the stage or not. We want to be worshipers who encourage worship. And I went, that's convicting. I wrote that. <laughs> right? So let me challenge you guys in this. If you are looking for your identity in worship, in, in corporate gatherings, in your church congregations, to be anything other than being a sold-out, gospel-focused worshiper of the living God, you're missing an opportunity to bless your people. There is nothing, I can tell you this from experience, there is nothing better for older people in our congregation than to see young people sold out for the cause of Christ and worshiping him with everything that they've got. You want to change your culture? It's going to start with you, and then it's going to go to your seniors. You're going to see somebody who loves God desperately. Here's the caution, though. All these things are true. Everything here that I've said is true. I hope. And if it's not, Lord, strike it from our minds. What I believe that God wants us to be as worshipers is a source of encouragement to our congregations. And because you guys are in a Bible college setting where you are going to be trained to be the next leaders of the church, I am calling you and challenging you to be this in your local assemblies this Sunday. When you come to chapel next Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whatever day you get together, regardless of how the band sounds, regardless of how the lights are, regardless of how much fog is in your room, regardless of any of that stuff. Those are periphery issues. Is your heart right with God and has he called you to be a worshiper or not? And let him do in you and through you deep, deep spiritual work by you losing your inhibitions and halaling him, barocking him, shabaking him, todahing, confessing to him. Alan Ross, who's a writer that I really liked, he says this, if we even begin to comprehend the risen Christ in all of his glory, or faintly hear the heavenly choirs that surround the throne with their anthems of praise, or imagine what life in the presence of God will be like in eternity, then we can never again be satisfied with worship in our contexts as usual. We will always be striving to make our worship fit for glory. And we will always be aware that our efforts, no matter how good or noble, are still of this world and not of the one to come. But how much more glorious would our congregations be in the presence of God if we took an eternal perspective to our Sunday gatherings and our worship times? Let me pray for you. Father, I'm really thankful for these wonderful young men and women, um, for these college students who are here, God, for, for several different reasons. Maybe some of them, God, they're here because mom and dad wanted them to take a year off and, and go to Bible college. Um, maybe some of them here, are, God, are here because they want to see you do something huge in their lives to impact your world with your gospel. Um, God, I know what it's like. I've sat in these chairs. I've listened to these speakers. Um, I've heard their challenges. God, would you take one thing to each heart that has been spoken out of your word today? Would you take one thing that strikes a chord and allows these students to understand your call for worship, that it sets an example that is far beyond just something that we do on Sunday? Help them to know, God, that worship is a life choice, 
Help them to understand, God, that your calling for them is to be worshiper first. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the greatest treasure and we can worship you full well knowing that there is nothing better than you. Convict us all, God. Challenge my heart. Start with me. And Lord Jesus, would you be made much of? Would your renown become greater and greater still? Would our world see the church as the beautiful bride that it is? And we, would we set an example of different that our world so desperately needs? Because it's in your authority, I ask. It's in your grace, I ask. It's because of what you've done for me, I get to ask. And we together ask, Lord, that you would do these things because of your beautiful name. Amen.